Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Hello, hello, it's the end of the week. Well, I don't know what day it is for you. For me, it's the end of the week. And actually, we've had kind of a wonderful week here on the show. I mean, ideally, most of our weeks are wonderful. This one has seemed very special. I'm sure the conclusion will be absolutely thrilling. It's the nose, our weekly cultural roundtable. I want to say by way of preface, some weeks on the nose, I'm the cranky old guy who doesn't like anything. And then some weeks, I'm the guy who likes things. And I think this week, I'm the latter, which is good. Uh, but uh, I want to introduce you to our panel before I tell you what we're talking about. Rich Holland is with us, a principal at CoLab, founder of Free Center, commissioner on cultural affairs for the city of Hartford. Jacques Lamar is a playwright, uh, uh, and a playwright is having quite in August and September, I would say. A playwright, and he's a chief communications officer at Buzz Engine. He also owes us a favor after yesterday, which is always a good position for us to be in. Tracy Wu Fastenberg is development officer at Connecticut Children's. They're all here with us. We're going to talk today about two uh, sort of fantasy shows. One of them is a franchise show. It's She-Hulk Attorney at Law. The other one is Paper Girls, which is kind of adapted from a comic um, that ran for, I don't know, like 50 issues or something, uh, and has already been canceled. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it. Uh, But we're going to begin with She-Hulk, attorney at law. Before we hear from the panel, uh, let's hear a little tiny clip from here. Uh, You're going to hear the star of the show, the undisputed star of the show, Tatiana Maslany, uh, as Jennifer Walters. She is a relative of the original Hulk. And due to a bizarre twist of fate, she acquires many of his characteristics. The Hulk, or Bruce Banner, is obviously always played by Mark Ruffalo. Uh, here they go. So I'm clearly nailing it at all these things. When am I ever going to use this as a lawyer? Jen, when you have powers like this, it's like putting a target on your back in the backs of all the people you care about. Oh, cool. Yet another way my life is ruined. Thanks, Bruce. All right. So I should say Tatiana Maslany uh, was the star of a previous series called Orphan Black, where she played a whole bunch of different clones who, who all had different personalities, different accents, different backgrounds. It was a, just an incredible star turn, a very virtuosic performance, although I kind of gave up on the series at a certain point for other reasons. There's just no question uh, this is a, 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 a comic talent that needed to be harnessed in some way. So let's talk about whether that works here. Uh, I, I don't think there's anything more that I have to say by way of setup. She is a, she's a lawyer. Uh, she uh, turns into the Hulk or a version of the Hulk. She loses her original job as a district attorney and goes into private practice with a somewhat sinister looking high rise uh, big firm with shiny desks uh, and hilarious complications ensue. I don't know. Let's find out. Jacques Lamar, why don't you get us going here? Uh, you have your own gift for comedy uh, that is justifiably being celebrated at theaters around the state of Connecticut. Uh, how did She-Hulk go for you? I, um, you know, was not looking forward to it. I actually had told uh, some friends who were like, you need to watch She-Hulk, that I wasn't really interested. And then um, uh, the nose came knocking. And so I sat down and 
I um, I really enjoyed it for the most part. I I was wondering, or you know, kind of continue to wonder because of all the Easter eggs and whatnot, or knowledge of other things in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You know how how enjoyable some of these things are when they're calling back villains and characters and whatnot from other series or other other films. Um, you know, I'm pretty much up on most of it, but I've been kind of iffy on some of the TV shows. So, uh, you know, for me, I, I really enjoyed it a lot more, a lot more than I thought I would. Um, I have some reservations, but I, I do kind of like the mix of comedy um, and legal procedural, um, which I actually wish there was more of in the show. Right. Yeah, and I yeah, I want to go back to that idea of the callbacks because I think it's an interesting point. For me, like I'm pretty well imbued uh with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but I really don't know whether Tim Roth as the Abomination exists somewhere else. If if he does, I missed it. But I mean, I don't know. It's Tim Roth playing this monstrous monstrous guy in a kind of Hannibal Lecter plexiglass sell i don't know like that's just sort of inherently funny anyway right yeah and i i think um uh you know it each episode's really short and i just watched the most recent episode that dropped last night and i wished it was longer which i was surprised about um you know when we talk about um, the other show that we're reviewing this week, I wished it was shorter, mm-hmm. but um, I felt like there was such a rush that some of the fun, you know, legal procedural stuff gets really short shrift. Um, but yeah, well, I, I don't know. think you can re- you can't really expect like Sam Waterston here. You're right. I mean, it's you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not really trying like, cases here. <laughs> I know, but we're going from like opening arguments to a decision within three minutes. How would Jack handle this prosecution? That's what I want to know. <laughs> so, Tracy Wu Fastenberg, how about you? You, I don't think you are a sort of dyed in the wool kind of Marvel person. I also, I really don't think that matters here. But I'm just wondering what you thought. So, I am definitely not. I think um, most of what I've watched as part of any superhero franchise of any sort has been for the notes. Um, so those, anything that I've watched here are my only points of reference. And so I definitely went in there not knowing anything, probably missed every single Easter egg. Um, I could still follow it. It was fine. You know, when a character popped up, that was probably nostalgic for someone um, that would be steeped in this. It was kind of like, oh yeah, there's, there's probably some person, you know, like it's probably some character that we saw before and, but it's not really that important to the story, I guess, to know, you know, the, the, that character's background, that villain's, you know, origination or, or any of that. Um, but you also have to have a level of cultural literacy where you understand who Megan the Stallion is, uh, which like a lot of comic book nerds might not fully get back to. <laughs> that I do know. I'm, I'm, I'm proud to say, and I'm actually shocked to say that I get a pop culture reference like that. But, um, you know, and I thought it was fun. You know, it was kind of fun. It was upbeat. It was light. Um, it didn't really hold my attention that much though. Um, I would say, and it's probably gonna go for both series that we watched, you know, when I watch things for here, I pay attention closer because we're gonna be talking about them, but I was really easily distracted. It it just didn't hold my attention the same way. I thought that, you know, 
Tatiana Mons Monslani. How do you say her name? I, I say it Maslani, but I don't. I've been, I haven't. I have not been coached. I thought I thought she was adorable and you know very engaging, but at the same time, I don't think I'm going to continue watching this mm. per se. See, I mean, I I think some of the things that we might consider Easter eggs aren't even necessarily Easter eggs. I mean, like there are two episodes really built around a character from uh, I think it's Wong, yeah, um, from the Doctor Strange films, who then of course crosses over into the Spider-Man films. There's the uh, the weird kind of elf character from new asgard which requires some knowledge of thor so there are certain things where you're like if you're not immersed in this world i could see why you would be taken out of it and maybe find it lackluster God, yep. chuck i don't think i fully appreciate it you know how fully marvelized you are uh i mean just that you were like able to pull those things together uh, I'm, I'm not sure I could have done that as well as you just did. So, um, so, so, Rich, we need to hear from you. And I, I'm sure you have things you specifically want to say, although I'm eager to hear in particular you talk a little bit about this show's stab and, and, and MCU's overall stab recently into kind of postmodernism, right? They're, they're trying some, to, they're experimenting with their own format. Is this something we can laugh at? Is this something that we can call right. attention to the essence of? And this is probably about as far as they've ever taken that. Yeah. So um, a couple of things real quickly. Um, uh, I kind of dig Marvel Universe in the same way I love family reunions. It's about the fireworks and not at all about the backstories, right? And um, and so I just miss the vast majority of the references that fly through these things, even though I've seen probably all of the Marvel Universe films, right? Um, and so I'm listening to Jacques point all these things out. I'm like, oh, that was cool. But did you see how they blew up that cannon is really the part that <laughs> matters most to me. Um, that said, um, I do remember Abomination because I do remember Tim Roth because Tim Roth delivers every single time he was in that Ed Norton Hulk movie. And, you know, oh. that they, they were military device, uh, military vehicles blown up all over the place. And Tim, Tim Roth really sold that high production, well-developed, um, uh, high intensity movie, uh, that was all fireworks. Now, everybody is departing from my image of them today. Like, you know, I wouldn't have guessed that Jacques knew so much about, you know, sort of deep cut Marvel stuff. And I wouldn't have got, expected you to be the guy saying, oh, no, I want the real comic booky stuff at, at a high production level, not the witty dialogue or the formalistic questioning. Well, you know what the thing is, though? I mean, I, I default to the witty dialogue, but then it's got to be witty dialogue. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the issue is that it's not really witty dialogue. It's just it's predictable. It's it's all phoned in. And um, and that becomes a challenge. If you're going to phone something in, you could phone in pyrotechnics because that always works. Right. You know, you can't screw that up. <laughs> um, so um, so and that's kind of even the the experiments they're they're doing with form. Um, that's in speak, you know, that's only for folks who are really deeply invested in the scripting of these things to realize, you know, the, the slight nuance shift between uh, Deadpool's breaking of the fourth wall and She-Hulk's breaking of the fourth, 
fourth wall, right? Yeah. That's like such a level of insider baseball, um, you know, that at, at, for me, it sits at the level of like, okay, she's talking to me. Why is she doing this? This is kind of annoying, <laughs> you know? Um, and, you know, and can someone write a script that I could hang with? Um, and and have this develop have all of that information come through in plot development and character development and talk to somebody else about this and not me. I'm not in on the joke yet, you know. So, so there are all these devices that are being used in uh, you know plot devices, cinematic devices, storytelling devices uh, to try and bring a kind of fresh energy to it. Um, but at the end of the day, it's just it lacks it lacks a pulse. Mm. See, I am I am the happy guy this week, and I'm usually the crabby guy. I really had a lot of fun watching this, and I, I do find it funny. I think Mislani has just incredible comic chops, and that helps a lot. But I, I'm kind of digging all this stuff. And Tracy, I think I'm also digging the way that this thing exists in a lot of different entertainment universes. Uh, Wong, uh, who was just cited, uh, is this magician who can travel through these portals that he creates. But he's also just trying to stay home and chill and catch up on the Sopranos of all things. He wants to binge. He wants to binge. He doesn't want spoilers. He wants to watch, what is it, This Is Us, too? I right. mean, And there's yeah. this drunk lady who's there. I don't quite understand who she is, but she just blurts out, like, this is the one where Adriana dies. You know, I was really crying over this one. And he's going nuts. He, he has magical powers, but he can't get her to <laughs> shut up. You know, and sort of that, plus Megan the, Megan the Stallion is playing Megan the Stallion, but there's also an elf from New Asgard who can turn into Megan the Stallion. So it feels like it's in the Marvel Universe, but it's kind of everywhere else, too. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely those references, which I actually got because they weren't Marvel references. And I think, you know, they're trying to integrate that to make it more relatable, probably for somebody like me. I still don't think they were there were enough for me to sit there and go, oh, yeah, this is super fun. I mean, I do like Benedict Wong and I did find those to be entertaining and funny, but not enough to kind of carry the whole thing for me. So. I, I'm just so fascinated by all of this. So, so <laughs> no, I really am. Partly because, I mean, Jacques, I do feel, I mean, I think Rich makes a great point, and I had not really thought about Deadpool, which is probably the other place that they're stretching uh, the fourth wall about is to, to the breaking point. But to yeah. my mind, when Mislani goes direct to camera, and she will talk about this thing as intellectual property, she'll say, you know, this is the kind, This is is this one of the episodes where they have a big guest cameo? Well, let's not forget who the star of the series is, <laughs> you know, and yeah. to me that that's going into a different place. Now, to Rich's point, maybe there's something ultimately flaccid about doing that, although I found myself kind of pleasantly jolted by it. Yeah, I um, if and I don't know if anyone else watched episode five, which came out last night. Um, I mean, they really go kind of deep on on some of that wink wink uh aspect of of pop culture where you know this influencer buys you know steals her ip as she hulk and they have to go to the court over it and and this influence social influencer slash superhero um who's clearly like or super villain she's clearly a ridiculous character and she's you know, selling skincare products and foot scrubs and stuff that are all She-Hulk branded. <laughs> Meanwhile, She-Hulk has to go to a stylist to get 
you know, a makeover so that she can be more of what society, you know, expects of a superhero. Of a female uh, superhero. What was yeah. that? Of a female superhero. Of a female superhero. Um, so I think there's this, as you say, you know, this this awareness of the universe in which it exists. And I, I do feel it is more clever than, than Rich feels uh, that it is. And I think that it's... Um, you know, that some of it's that awareness, which Deadpool has. Deadpool has much better action. I think it's trying to juggle too much in a 30-minute time slot. That where if it was an hour long, it would be, um, I think it would, the, everything would be able to breathe a little bit easier instead of feeling like so jam-packed and full of references and whatnot. Can I say though, Colin, yeah. um, when, when you talk about this, the IP of Hulk, that she's discussing the IP, yeah. but you know, the real IP of Hulk is its big green hulkiness, right? Um, that's the IP, right? And um, <laughs> when I think back at like the original Hulk, like the um, uh, the uh, Bill, uh, Bill Bixby as David Banner or Lou Ferrigno as the Hulk, right? The amount of screen time that Lou Ferrigno had in that series was not great, right? You know, it was it was the response, right? Um, they have somehow managed to contrive the IP of this thing uh, so that it's like twenty four seven Hulk, right? You know, uh, that, that there's you know that you're constantly seeing uh, the She Hulk uh, on this thing, and it's been contrived to that point. And yet, that level of you know of in speak meta IP is not what's actually being discussed at all. You know, it's uh, because that to me is is a plot contrivance that was worthy of examination. I really know, feel how... like I feel like Wong has transported me into some other alternative reality <laughs> where Rich Holland is talking to me about how much screen time Lou Ferrigno got <laughs> versus Bill Bixby on the old Hulk. Where am I? What is really going on here? This is this is a reality simulation of some kind. Well, Rich, I want to stay with you on this idea for a second, because like the IP of Hulk, if I understand what you're saying, is kind of Hulk smash, right? That's right. Robert Downey Jr. kind of boiled it down to two words, Hulk smash. Um, and, and that's what's not happening, right? There's not a lot of Hulk smash at least not in that sense of smashing no but there's there's not a lot of hulk smash but there's a lot of hulk and that to me is is the issue that they're caught up in the um in the marvel marvel universe genealogy kind of thing and not at all in the fireworks which is what was attractive about you know about this hulk thing you know this is what was great about the ed norton abomination you know uh <laughs> scenes is it was it was complete mayhem and destruction um, and uh, and that had its hulkiness. Um, whereas right now we've got you know a Hulk that's just you know passive, you know in a lot of ways to the point that you know that um, we could the Hulk could be doing its really intellectual um, lawyerly stuff, you know all hulked out. It just makes no sense to me. I just can't resolve that. There's a lot of talk about being the Hulk, you know, like, you know, oh, you're the She-Hulk. Oh, you're the She-Hulk. You're like, how much can you lift? How, you know, like, what can you do? Not actually seeing what she can do. Exactly. I wonder if some of it is, and this isn't, um, isn't a complaint. I wonder how much of it is that there's such a strong female creative team behind this that they're probably more interested in exploring how a woman would navigate this, 
you know, this change um, as opposed to Hulk smash. Right. We're, by the way, we're getting a text now from Eric Bana's agent who says, like, is Rich not going to mention the Eric Bana Hulk? Uh, like all the other <laughs> Hulks have been mentioned. Was there, Eric Bana was in the Ang Lee Hulk, right? I mean, that sounds like a joke, but I think that, I think that is correct. Yeah. Actually, yeah. And, and but it's interesting because they've gotten away from doing Hulk features um, as I don't think either of them were spectacularly successful. Like and and they've made the character smart hulk as they call it which p.s mark ruffalo as smart hulk does things to me uh, i love uh, mark ruffalo too yeah no but when he's hulk for some reason i'm like boy he's really hot uh but i think you know that there's you know there's something about the character of hulk when it's purely that lou ferrigno hulk smash thing where you can only have so much of that, right? Right. Well, yes. Because it's well, I mean, because in the Avengers, it's it's you know, it's not the main course. In fact, it's like it's often comes as a relief after a lot of other stuff that's happening. You know that. Yeah, he's like a chaos agent. <laughs> so he's the <laughs> ultimate chaos muppet. You know. Um, yeah. So I, I also do want to say just just a little shout out to I think because of that creative team, you're going to see on this series women getting to do a lot of really interesting things. It's not just things. It's not just uh, Tatiana Maslany. It's Jamila Jamil. J- I always get her name wrong here. I'm going to look it on my phone. Jamila Jamil, uh, who we loved in The Good Place. And she's, you know, some kind of villain in this thing. I believe, although I haven't seen much of her, that Renee Elise Goldberry is going to have a pretty big role maybe on the rest of the series. Of course, the original Angelica and Hamilton, among other things. So, I mean, I like that idea, too, that you're going to get to see talented people having some fun doing some stuff in this very low stakes way. And and we have to wrap up here. But Tracy, maybe that's one thing to sort of say, too, is that, you know, I mean, and I don't know how much of what I'm about to say is going to mean anything to you. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there's sort of the whole Avengers arc leading to Endgame and stuff like that is about the extinction of huge portions of the universe and the elimination of 50% of humankind or however much much of it is that everybody dies. I mean, this is the opposite of that, right? I mean, there isn't really anything that's going to go terribly wrong on She-Hulk attorney at law. No, there's not. There's, I mean, it's it, that's what why it's fun and light. You know, there's no real big, big bad that's, you know, going to destroy everyone or even take down a city or anything like that. But maybe that's why it's kind of not that interesting, though, too, is that there isn't like a, a clear cut end goal. Right. I may be more stressed out than everybody else on this show because, like, <laughs> I, I want to watch this for 30 minutes and not have to worry about it. Like, maybe they get overbilled or something, you know, that's like going to be the, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I want those kinds of stakes. Uh, all right. We're going to take a quick break and come back with this very surprising and I think I think there might be some kind of shape-shifting going on with this panel, but we'll come back and we'll talk about Paper Girls. Yo, 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 they want to know who's a girl. Yo, yo, come on, come on, who's a girl. Yo, 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 come on, come on, who's a girl. What's my name, yo, yo, what's my name, yo, who's a girl. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. 
ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right, uh, we're back with the nose. Uh, on the nose today are three beings purporting to be the following people. At least one of them is a, an elf from New Asgard who can turn into crazy Wu Fastenberg or something. But anyway, there are uh, beings purporting to be Rich Holland, a principal at CoLab, founder of the Free Center, commissioner on cultural affairs for the city of Hartford. He's the one I'm the most suspicious about right now. Like, I don't think this is actually Rich Holland. But uh, Jacques Lamar is a playwright and a chief communications officer at Buzz Engine. Tracy Wu Fasterberg, development officer at Connecticut Children's. So Paper Girls is an eight-episode series. <laughs> we can say that with a certain finality now because it's been canceled. And, uh, you know, it, I think it's unlikely that some other streaming platform will pick it up. But right now, anyway, Amazon Prime has had enough. Uh, it's about four young friends who have paper roots uh, in 1988 in Cleveland, uh, but they don't stay in 1988 for very long. Uh, some weird things happen. They're transported to 2019, uh, and they get caught up in a kind of inter-time period war involving different kinds of time travelers. Uh, how am I doing so far so <laughs> explaining this series? Um, so, uh, so, Rich, when do we get started uh, with you or the person, the being claiming to be Rich Holland? Uh, uh, let's get started with you. Uh, how did this work for you? Um, everything was set up about this thing to be something that I would that I would just absolutely love, right? Um, it's uh, it's young kids find, trying to find their ways. Um, uh, the they have this commonality of paper routes uh, that are holding holding them together. Um, it had the potential to be one part stand by me. Uh, one part, something that I'm forgetting, um, that's, uh, that's about these kids that, you know, that don't actually know each, oh, breakfast club, one yeah. part breakfast club, one part stand by me, uh, set in this sci-fi universe, um, uh, where things are going wrong that we don't quite understand. And everything about that seems to have been set up to be perfect. Right. Um, and, uh, and then there was this pile of laundry and I kept paying attention to my pile of laundry that needed to get done <laughs> and thinking about like, you know, well, what happens if I only have a load of darts and two articles that are whites? Do I do a separate white load? Do I hand wash those so the thing can be done? I was distracted by anything and everything under the sun instead of this, instead of this piece. And I can't for the life of me figure out why, because all of the components were there. The pace I thought was hideously slow. Hmm. Um, uh, there were things that were happening with time travel and with, um, 
these uh, these nefarious characters that would pop in and out that I could not understand to save my life. And, um, and there was something about the, the lack of genuine tension in this um, that kept me from caring to hang in to hear how it resolves. All right. So, um, you know, I don't, by the way, I, don't you think, Rich, that in addition to the uh, two sources that you cited, did you think in the Amazon Prime pitch meeting they said the word "stranger things" a lot? I yeah, mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it just absolutely. It, it feels like the series might have been sold on that basis. This is a Stranger Things, but it's with young young women uh, as yeah. opposed to mostly boys. So yeah, that was that's the bankable part of it, right? Right. You know that that was the bankable part that we now know was not all that bankable. Right. Um, <laughs> and uh, but the you know the character development had nothing to do with Stranger with Stranger Things. No. Yeah grew out of some other places. And that's the part that I was interested in, unlike Hulk, where it was about the fireworks, right? Right. So um, I, I would say, by the way, that young Mac uh, would just say, put your dirty laundry back on. Don't even wash it. Uh, <laughs> I think Aaron would like figure out how to sort those clothes out, you know, pr- pretty well. So uh, and, and to that extent, uh, Tracy Wu Fastenberg, th- these four k- girl characters, they are I think they're reasonably well-developed as characters. I, I sort of feel like I, I know who all four of them are. They have a little bit of a stock character feel in in some ways. I didn't think that was the problem, but I think I'm I'm with the group this time that there's something that's a problem with this series. Yeah, I mean, like Rich, if you had told me the description of it, all in, right? Stranger Things, preteen girls, um, 80s, you know, tra- traveling through time really into it. Um, the first episode actually got me interested because they were focusing on the 12 year old Asian character, the Chinese character. And, you know, I can personally relate to that in many ways. And so I'm like, this is fantastic. I love Ali Wong. Um, you know, she's a great comedian, although not somewhat funny in this, but I don't think she was given the material to really kind of shine in that way. Um, I did like all of the four young girl characters. I think that they did a nice job with it. They definitely checked some boxes. All right, this one's going to be the the jock. This one's going to be the, you know, the broken home kid or whatever. Um, but they did a nice job of developing them alongside with their adult counterparts or people they encountered, you know, later on from, from their families. Um, but I found the darn thing confusing. I couldn't follow the time travel. I couldn't follow, you know, who the bad characters really were. I still am not quite sure who Heck and Naldo are, although they're mentioned about 4,000 times. Um, but I, I thought the four young actresses did a great job. Um, and I hope to see them in more things because they were all very endearing in their own way. Yeah, I don't know who Heck and Naldo are either. And uh, they're the two guys that get killed in the first spoiler alert in the first spoiler. Episode. Yeah, I know that, but like I don't know what that means or like why that's important exactly. Why they're important? Yeah, they're they're the the ones who are fighting against the people in the space 1999 outfits who are also <laughs> inexplicable. Right. Um, so you know, uh, Tracy, I just want to stay with you for a second on this, I, and I want to confess at the risk of some kind of um, approbation about it, that I didn't know who Ali Wong was. I wasn't familiar with her. And I think she's terrific in just selling the scenes that she's in. We should, I, this is not a spoiler. This, there are a lot of rules about time travel movies and, and time travel TV shows. And one of them often is you can't meet your other self. 
But this one breaks that rule and and people are in the presence. She in particular is in the presence of her younger self. And there's sort of a parent-child relationship that kind of starts up between her and her younger self. But, you know, those that's hard work, I think, to sell those scenes and make them work at least within the context of the scene itself, if not in the larger context. And and I thought Ali Wong, who, I, as I say, I didn't have any particular expectations for, was really, really good, you know, at, at working the emotions that are written into those scenes, Tracy. I thought so as well, because I've seen her mainly in, in comedic things that she was able to have a little more depth with this character than maybe other roles that she's had and, you know, certainly her stand-up. Um, and I was pleasantly surprised, even though I did have decent expectations for her. I also thought, you know, she was playing a lot with the four young girls or her young self um, and developing a story that never fully got developed too with her own family. You know, I kind of had wished they had wrapped that up a little better, but she did a great job with those emotional parts as well as the action parts with a little more of the flashbang that maybe Rich was looking for. There was, there was fighting there. So there was the excitement of that. Big robots Um, fighting, big robots. Yeah, giant robots being. (laughs) Who doesn't love that? Yeah. So, Jacques, how about you? How, how's this? What's your overall take here? Um, well, while we're talking about fighting robots and what the special effects in this really remove the term special. <laughs> uh, they are terrible. And it's sort of like, you know, what would excite a certain age group? Well, we need transformers and dinosaurs. And so you get both. <laughs> and you don't even get the excitement of a dinosaur fighting a transformer. <laughs> And like the laser guns and the costumes and whatnot, those are, they're all terrible. I mean, I think for me, um, you know, the, the most interesting stuff is when the young, the younger versions of themselves are confronted with their future, Hmm. whether or not they're actually talking to their, their future selves or observing their future selves as one of them does. And really, you know, is able to kind of put put a you know put a face or a name to what she suspects about herself as a as a youth and then there's you know another one who I don't want to spoiler you know who whose future is much more complicated and so to me that those were the the interesting things that got you know uh that when when you were away from the action quote unquote of the time travel and trying to figure out who's fighting who and who's the bad guys and who's the good guys and whatnot. It was, it was interesting. I felt bad for the young actors who are good that they were given um, oftentimes very little to play in a certain sense. So at first I was like, you know, the, all these young actors are, are very mature um, but they've got like a two note range of, you know, um, and, and so it, it made, I think some of the slow, very talky stuff even slower and, uh, the things that were supposed to be funny just weren't funny. So that dragged things even further. I mean, I think this series could have been at least two episodes shorter, um, having watched all eight of of the episodes. And I, you know, I imagine a big reason why this thing got picked up was because Brad Pitt is one of the producers. If you had not hit (laughs) stop the second the action stopped, you would have seen his name in the credits. And I think that that probably goes a long way. I would have loved to have seen it embrace its 
the best parts of itself. Right. Uh, it just, you know, I know that like the rings of power is slow, but at least that kept my attention. This one, it was. Well, I'll yeah. tell you, the other way to think about this is if Brad Pitt can't save you and get you a second season, that's also a sign that there's a blinking light on the dashboard. Although, you know, yeah. Rich, I often ask Rich, I think, uh, ask you visual questions because I know you're way more visually oriented and gifted at this kind of stuff than, than I am, God knows. But So I have two visual questions. One of them is a real simple one. Did you feel as though the first couple of episodes were just unbelievably murky? I was like I was like calling Samsung to see if there was like a problem with my TV set or something. I'm like, I feel like I was just peering through this sort of brownish fog and everything. Same here. I watched it. I try, I watched it on my TV at first and I thought there was something wrong with it. So I watched it on my computer and realized that it's actually they turned all the key lights off, you know, <laughs> and it was just low, low, low um, uh, contourless light. And it was a struggle to watch. OK, I knew I was asking the right person this question. And the, the <laughs> other question that I have is about the kind of the transliteration from a comic book to a moving picture on a screen of any kind, you know? And so, and I don't know if you got this far, Rich, there is a scene that in which uh, the two of the girls are fleeing from a place and one of them is driving a motorbike. The other one is sitting on the back, uh, back of the motorcycle, leaning into her back, but she has sort of experienced her life in very, very tragic terms. And there's a way in which her loss has been compounded by the fact that she's had to flee the scene that she's in. And she melts and melts and melts into the back of the girl who's driving uh, the motorcycle. And it really starts to look like a Rodin sculpture at a certain point. And I thought, wow, I bet you that's in the comic book, you know, <laughs> but but that, you go ahead. I think that that would have been the saving grace of the entire series for me, yeah. uh, Colin, and I did not hang in that far. Um, uh, and apparently it seems that after episode three, um, according to you, anyway, uh, things start making some sense. Uh, mm. Disagree. <laughs> well, I think <laughs> some sense. sense. Some sense is the key. Yeah, yeah. But you know, ordinarily, as you know, ordinarily when we watch these series, um, I binge them and I stay up. And you know, even the ones I don't like all that much, I stay up to you know to to understand why. Kind of like Purple Rain, you got to see it twice to understand how bad it is. Um, and <laughs> in this instance, uh, I just couldn't get. I mean, it was a struggle to do the three episodes, so I didn't get to spots maybe where, you know, they felt like they needed to experiment more and to, and, you know, and to do more poetic things. Um, you know, I just couldn't get through those first three episodes to get to that point, unfortunately, because what you describe sounds absolutely beautiful. Well, also, Morris Day becomes a character in episode four, so, you, you know, you really could get the whole Purple Rain thing going. I'm, I'm kidding, actually. Oh, well, but can I, can I tell you, though, um, uh, Jacques made a point about, um, you know, about the, the two notes of these young actors, right? And I don't know if it's the actors, you know, as much as it's some of the directorial choices and some of the scripting choices. Um, uh, I think they were written with the expectation that the characters would only have two notes. So there was all these sort of um, devices that were put into the script to help carry the the meaning of behind the characters. You know, you finally get to an understanding of why this one character swears so much and seems a little like more morose than the others. And, you know, and it's tied directly to, um, you know, to a truth that we learn about her, 
you know, and she swears a lot, you meet her dad, and he's swearing at her as well, right? You know, it's like, oh, okay, got it. So this is what this is all about. <laughs> and um, with the, and it seems like it didn't trust the actors uh, to get you there to, to an understanding of the character. So I don't know if anybody has anything else they want to get off their chest here about this as we head towards the end. Although, Jacques, since you did watch all eight episodes, um, mm-hmm. uh, we should p- make the point that the episodes are a different of different lengths and sometimes of radically different lengths. So the the amount of time that you budget for episode four or five or, you know, I mean, should be you should check first because it might be way longer than anything you've seen so far. I, I don't think I've seen that kind of time disparity in stuff that I've watched so far. Uh, uh, Stranger Things seemed to be kind of flexing in that direction, and it's in the last season. I mean, there were certain episodes that were what over two hours, mm-hmm. um, which none of this approaches that that kind of length. But they, it also doesn't merit it. Um, you know, I think uh, I think there's a good show here yeah. somewhere, um, and I think that you know it. Um, I didn't go in sort of like wanting to hate it or anything like that, but I, and I know that Tracy liked the eightiesness of it, but at the same time I was like, boy, they didn't really nail the eighties the way stranger things does. No, they didn't. I like the concept of the, if they had pitched it of, you know, eighties and, you know, harkening back to nineties or whatever. I just don't think that they really highlighted it well enough. I do yeah. think that, you know, one thing that they did that Stranger Things also does is really mess around in interesting ways with music. And as we know, Stranger Things actually created, almost created the song of the summer by reviving a Kate Bush tune. Um, here, it's the Bangles with the Hazy Shade of Winter, their version of that. There's a really good LCD sound system song, and I don't say those words in not as one phrase very often. Uh, Alice Cooper, Debbie Gibson, which is obviously, you know, one of their big 80s tags here. But also, I don't know, Lou Bega, Perry Como's Mambo song. Song, uh, Ligeti's Requiem. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they're kind of all over the map here, but I, I almost want to rewatch the series and just pay attention to what they're doing with music because I think they're doing some interesting things with it. Um, we should probably break here. It's Paper Girls. I don't think we really sold it to any of you, but you know, don't be afraid. Just go and make up your own mind about it. We are going to take a little break. The panel is going to make some recommendations when we come back. We really have had kind of a crazy week here on the show, uh, and it's been, I think, a successfully crazy week. But at times like this, you really appreciate the people you work with. So special thanks to two people who accompanied me through all the craziness of this week. That would be Kat Pastor, our technical producer, Lily Tyson, our senior producer, who is producing the episode of uh, this episode of The Nose. It's usually McPants. He's off this week, uh, which perhaps enhanced our feelings uh, of craziness. Although I wouldn't have bet on that outcome. Uh, all right, so it's time to make some recommendations. I'm now convinced I'm dealing with the people that I thought I was dealing with, and this isn't some Rick and Morty episode. Uh, but Rich Holland, why don't you get us going with some recommendations? Sure. Uh, a while ago, I had seen this exhibition called um, Soul of a Nation, and I bought the book, so I'm going to recommend that everybody just get the book and look through it. Uh, Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power. 
Um, it features 60 Black artists and, um, and, uh, and the narrative around the work and its place in American history is hugely important. But that's not really the recommendation that I'm making right now. I'm recommending everybody go out to the New Britain uh, Museum of Art and see what I consider the mini version of Soul of a Nation, 30 Americans, it's called. It ends in October and uh, it features um, 30 uh, incredible black artists uh, from Nick Cave to Basquiat and my all-time favorite, uh, Barclay Hendricks, Barclay L. Hendricks. Um, it's at the New Britain Museum of, of Art and uh, absolutely worth every second you spend in this thing. And I've had some incredible conversations just walking through that exhibit with other uh, black folks who are marveled at what we can do. Well, that's great. And I, I think uh, in the Soul of the Nation book, uh, Benny Andrews, the late Benny Andrews, who, who was a, a good friend of mine in life, uh, is represented in there. Wonderful, wonderful painter. And he was just such an amazing human being as well. So thanks for that. Um, all right. So uh, Jacques Lamar, how about you? What are you going to recommend? Uh, what I am recommending is um, the novels of Patrick Dennis, who uh, particularly um, his Auntie Mame novel and uh, Little Me, uh, which is a camp classic. And I've been listening to Auntie Mame and I've been um, reading, rereading Little Me, uh, which I reread a few every few years. It's one of my favorite books. And he is just hilariously funny, um, so smart had such a weird life, um, which is also worth reading about in a biography called Uncle Mame. Um, but he, he, I think, is kind of a neglected comic genius that I uh, hope people will take time to read. All right. Say the name again of the comic genius. Patrick Dennis. All right, Patrick Dennis. All right. And Tracy Wu Fastenberg, how about you? First, I'm going to give my annual enjoy fall, embrace fall. This is the time. Colin, I've not had any pumpkin spice yet, though, which I think is going to further your belief that we are all bots today. Right. Um, and also West End Porch Fest is on Sunday. Um, and so I think that that's always a fun thing. There's food trucks, there's um, lots of music and, and community things going on. I think Nightfall is going to have some sort of representation there. Um, but it's a nice West End thing and the weather's supposed to be good. All right. So, yeah, Tracy Wu Fastenberg with no pumpkin spice and it's what, mid-September here? I really I'm wrong. I am going to go talk to Mr. Wong about whatever he did to the universe because I'm 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 upset. Um there's something something deeply wrong here. All right. So, um first the first thing that I'm going to recommend actually is and it kind of fits in a little bit uh with some of the stuff that we've been talking about. A somewhat obscure indie film called Funny Pages. Uh, it is about the world of comic book nerds, but it's a sort of, you know, kind of a grotesquely inflamed version. Let me just put it this way. If you start a conversation with someone who also watched Funny Pages, remember the weird-looking actor in Funny Pages? That doesn't narrow the field down at all. Everybody's weird-looking. Everybody's weird. This And I, you know, in at a time where, yeah— Maybe we are a little bit burned out on MCU and things that look like Stranger Things and stuff like that. So this is a pretty unique work of imagination. It's a, an indie film made for it looks like kind of no money at all, uh, but it it really uh, 
I don't know. I was completely enthralled by it. I have to sort of say on a personal level, this I, I enjoyed it more because my partner picked it out for us to watch based on some reviews and interviews she'd seen uh, with the very young filmmaker, Owen Klein. And it was even more fun because it's so not her kind of movie and so my kind of movie. But she had to pretend to like it all the way through, which was really making me enjoy it even more. Uh, so it's funny pages and, and lots of weird-looking people doing really strange things. Oh, Louise Lasser is in it. Like, for no reason, Louise Lasser <laughs> is in it. And Ron Rifkin, who's a great character actor, is in it for literally 10 seconds. Uh, so I don't I don't understand that either. But um, So funny pages. I also wanted to, um, you know, I don't usually – well, I, I want to re-recommend a podcast called The Watch. It's part of the Bill Simmons Ringerverse, but it's unique. It's two guys, Chris Ryan and Andy Greenwald. They're both from Philly. They grew up together. They've been friends since they were like 12 or something. Uh, and Andy Greenwald has gone, gone on to work a little bit in the world of television to you know, have his own projects and stuff. They're just so smart and very funny and have this wonderful, warm relationship, the two of them. And like just listening to today, I was listening to them break down the Emmys, both the, how the awards were dispersed and also what was right and wrong with the production. And even though I didn't watch the Emmys, I felt like, oh, I got everything I needed to get out of the Emmys just by listening to, to these two terrific guys just talking about it. So they kind of do what the nose does. They do it in a little bit more intense and granular way because they just watch everything. Uh, but it's it's a lot of fun. And then – I don't usually recommend other episodes of this show, but if you didn't happen to hear Jill Solbiel yesterday on the show, she's uh, obviously a wonderful singer who's uh, going to be appearing tonight at the Mark Twain House. This will make Jacques happy that I'm saying this uh, in the auditorium. Jacques, are tickets still available? Tickets are still available. You can go to marktwainhouse.org. Uh, and click on the events tab. So over the years, uh, Jill, who's been on the show, this is her sixth appearance on our show, her fourth full show, just her and me uh, appearance. She's become a friend. I mean, we really don't know each other. Like, I, <laughs> like, there's all kinds of really basic things about each other that we don't know. But when you hear us on the air, it is like listening to two friends talk, or maybe over coffee or something. It doesn't feel particularly scripted. It's interspersed with her singing her wonderful music. And uh, so it was yesterday's episode. Uh, check it out in our podcast feed or however you can get it. Um, these It might not even be the greatest Jill Sobiel appearance, but all of her appearances are, are really terrific. So uh, I'm going to just sell that one to you. All right. Thanks. Thank you to the people from this dimension or other dimensions. Rich Holland, Jacques Lamar, Tracy Woof, Astenberg. Thanks to you for listening. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.